hey, we're back on AI week. And those of you who are developers, uh, this is probably a lot more interesting because it's something that you can actually use on a day-to-day -day basis, which is GitHub Copilot. Uh, the general impression from people is that Co Codex is an open AI product and then GitHub sort of productionized it. Uh, but the, I guess the scutterbutt, scuttlebutt that I'm hearing from a lot of AI people uh, in the know was actually there was quite a bit of development effort at GitHub uh, to turn this into a product that people used. Uh, they, they spent six months iterating on various various versions of the idea uh, before launching what you have today. Um, and so uh, this goes, this is the first interview that I've heard someone on that team actually talking about it. And why not take credit? What I want to spend most of our time chatting about is a product that your team helped launch and incubate, which is GitHub Copilot, which yeah. in my just from my outsider perspective, feels like one of the biggest advances in software development in, I don't know, a decade, maybe more. And it's definitely one of the most magical products out there. And your team and you kind of led the incubation and launch of the Copilot. And so I'd love to spend most of our time chatting through that. And the first Ruby. question. Yeah. Okay, cool. So my first question, just for folks that don't know a lot about Copilot, is just like, what is it? Can you just kind of briefly describe what Copilot is? Yeah, sure. So... Developers for the last 20 years uh, or more have had essentially simple IntelliSense autocomplete. You hit the period and you get the next variable that might come up. It's, you know, it's helpful for moving a little bit faster through your code, helpful sometimes for remembering, you know, what the particular syntax might look like for a method or a function. Copilot is essentially that magnified by many lines of code. It is multi-lined autocomplete that is fundamentally powered by an AI model called Codex, which is a derivative of another kind of one that you might be familiar with, GPT-3. Now, mm -hmm. when you are in the editor, it could be VS Code, it could be IntelliJ, it could be uh, Vim. Essentially, as you are typing, Copilot will provide suggestions, usually in kind of this like italicized gray text that is really, to your point, kind of magical what it's able to infer based upon the variables around it, the class names, the method names around it, your comments. Copilot kind of infers what you intend to create and then hopefully does a pretty good job at nailing it by providing scaffolding code template that you can then riff on. Now, what we tend to find is that developers love it. They really like, enjoy it. They kind of find themselves getting a little addicted to it because it helps them stay in the flow, right? Like as developers, we love to be in that place. I love to be in that place where I'm creating things, where I'm focusing on some some product, some piece of software that I'm going to give to you know my customers, my users. The I know the labor of remembering, you know, what's the order of a parameters that need to come into a particular API or, Hey, what's the particular syntax of this thing that's supposed to do, or, Oh, I've got to create a bunch of like dummy data that is days of the week or months in the year. Like that's just labor. It's not creating, it's just typing copilot helps developers stay in the flow by bringing all of that information into the editor, preventing them from having to go check out documentation or watch a tutorial or go to Stack Overflow and, you know, 
either find an answer or worse, have to ask a question and wait for an answer. It just brings all of that into the editor and gives the developer often multiple suggestions that they can choose from and just kind of pick and choose what is the what is the right solution to solve the problem for the thing they're trying to create. Awesome. What I'm most curious about, and we're going to spend time on this, is just like how a product like this comes to be at a larger company. But before we get into that, what's like the craziest story of someone using Copilot to write code? And I'll I'll share one real quick. I was watching some YouTube videos <laughs> to prepare for this chat. And one guy, maybe this is the Turing test of AI writing code, is he used Copilot to center divs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really well, and he's like, wow, this did it right. And then uh, yeah. another guy, he's like an instructor of code. On, he makes YouTube videos teaching people how to code, and he's like, Copilot just gives you the answer immediately, and so I can't make these videos as easily. I have to like turn it off so that it doesn't just give it away. And so I'm curious, yeah, yeah. what have you seen? There, I mean, like, there are so many of those. I mean, I'll, I'll just kind of give a couple of recent ones that um, that I've heard. So I was talking to one developer who was, uh, he's actually an educator, and he's teaching kids how to code, uh, usually like uh, like kind of high school age, right? So 16, 15, that kind of thing. And, you know, his experience matches my own, which is that many of us, we learn to code best by, not by like arbitrary exercises, but by actually building something that's going to be useful, right? Solving problems. And so what he does is he matches small businesses and medium-sized businesses who need to build internal tools with essentially classes of students, uh, like, you know, like a group of maybe six or eight students, and then gives those students co-pilot and says, here, small business, medium-sized business, you know, group of, of students, go build this internal tool for this business. And co-pilot is essentially kind of whispering in the student's ear, metaphorically speaking, hey, you know, here's how you solve this problem. Here's how you do this. And students build not only the, the kind of the tool, the software that the business needs, and then get to put that on their resume and their, you know, application for college and university. But they also get to learn by kind of using the tools that likely are going to be part of the, the core DNA of the developer tool chain two, three, four years from now as AI starts to permeate our entire stack. So that was a, a pretty cool recent one that I, that I talked to. That is very cool. I didn't think about just the education lever here, just like making it so much easier to learn to code, not even just building code. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's the thing, like Copilot is particularly good, not just at taking away some of the effort, but often, you know, there's learning a new language and then there's also just wading into a code base that you're not necessarily familiar with, right? Like, I mean, heck, sometimes I don't recognize some of the code that I wrote six months ago or a year ago. It feels like I'm wading into new territory, but maybe maybe you need to fix a, a bug in an app that you don't often touch. Um, wading into that code base is kind of like learning and creating a mental map for that code base. One of the, you know, really magical pieces of, Copilot here is that that AI is collecting context of the application that you're going into. And so it can help you build that mental map and learn the code base, even if it's a language that you're already familiar with. Awesome. Okay. So, so going back to the beginning of Copilot and how it started, I'm always curious how a project that ends up being a huge deal to a larger company begins, and especially how yeah. it builds momentum, how it gets buy-in, and then just kind of gets out the door. 
And so can you talk about just the original seed of this idea? Like who did it come from? Who had the original vision? How did, how did this idea emerge and build momentum where you put resources into it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. What a, what a long and I don't know, depending upon your point of view, sorted or exciting story that <laughs> is. Um, so yeah. So Microsoft and OpenAI have been collaborating for, for quite a while now on large language models, making its way into kind of all different experiments and different parts of both Microsoft's kind of software portfolio, as well as just kind of helping OpenAI by providing, you know, the compute necessary. It, it takes massive amounts of compute to train these models. Um, and they were mostly large language models. And so uh, a couple of years ago now, it kind of dawned on us that, well, language models aren't just English and Spanish and German and Korean and Japanese, right? But Python and JavaScript and Java and C Sharp and Clojure, all of these are languages too. In fact, they're kind of nice from an AI perspective because they're relatively constrained in terms of their semantics, right? The the number of words, and I put that uh, uh, in scare quotes as it were, that can be expressed in Python, for example, is much smaller than the English language, which has all sorts of different grammar rules and nouns and verbs, adjectives, adverbs. And so... We started to uh, see what it would be like to actually bring code to these large language models. And the way that I actually got introduced to it is kind of funny. Microsoft and OpenAI had this idea. And at the time, one of the teams that I was responsible for was GitHub's infrastructure team, you know, the, the team responsible for our data centers, our reliability, our uptime. And we noticed one day that we were getting hammered, I mean, absolutely hammered with a tremendous amount of clone requests. And like, we're like, oh my gosh, is this like a denial of service attack? How are we going to respond to this? What's going to happen? And we figured out pretty quickly that it was actually open AI. They were cloning all of our repositories to harvest kind of the data out of GitHub. Wow. I mean, like it's totally legit practice, but like, you know, it does have a real consequence. And we were able to step in and mitigate it very quickly. There was not a reliability, uh, kind of an uptime incident there. But we're like, hey, y'all, like, cool, love this thing. Let's see if we can get that data to you in a, a more responsible way, in a way that's packaged a little bit more uh, to meet your needs. And so what we did is just like the year before that, we had actually um, created a snapshot of GitHub's public code for what we call the Arctic Code Vault, right? Essentially, this is up in like way in the Northlands of Finland. There's a seed vault. And we were like, you know what? Like seed vaults are really there to preserve the diversity of the world's flora in seeds in case of some crazy either natural or man-made disaster. But Another really important asset to the world is our code, our open source. Like this represents actually a lot of the collective, uh, well, certainly software, if not like intelligence of kind of like the modern world, right? And so we had put this snapshot of public repositories on these like this like silver uh, film that would be preserved for thousands of years in this Arctic code vault. 
Well, we took that same data snapshot and we brought it to our friends over at OpenAI to see like, okay, what can we do with these large language models built on public code? Well, it turns out we can do some pretty cool things, just like a translation tool that goes from English to Spanish, Spanish to German. You can also go from English to Python or Python to C sharp. are like, okay, this is cool. We, you know, we can start to get not only translation, but a little bit of predictive text here as well. And we're all, I think, fairly already familiar with predictive te- text already in our code editors as IntelliSense. But in, I don't know, you go to your favorite word processor and chances are that you've got some kind of predictive text happening there as well. And we started experimenting with different user experiences, right? Do we want it so that you, I don't know, right click and get a little side panel that comes up with a bunch of different options for things that you might want here. That was nice because it would give you like whole functions, but it's kind of out of the, and it was out of the, the cursor, right? And you had to really, even if you weren't switching over to a different window, you still had to switch over to a different panel, which itself was a little bit distracting. And we eventually came to this idea of inline autocomplete. Uh, we were able to, with the kind of partnership of some of our friends over on the Microsoft side of things, partner with our friends in Visual Studio Code, be like, hey, there's not really an extensibility yet in your editor for this multi-line autocomplete, but we've got an idea for how this might work, you know, played around with kind of the, you know, the actual presentation of it. What should the keystrokes be? What should the presentation layer be, you know, the gray italicized text seemed to be a good way of indicating that it was ephemeral, as it were. And pretty early on, we landed on this user experience that is co-pilot as most developers experience it today. That was now, I want to say that was at least 16 months ago, 14, 16 months ago. Since then, we brought it to developers. We just oh, to yeah. double click on that. So you're saying just like less than a year and a half ago, this kind of really started as a project and now it's out to the world. Is that right? That is exactly right. That's, wow. that's, that's incredible. exactly right. Yeah. How, so it's about a the, year and a half ago. Uh-huh. That's insane. What uh, what was that period between OpenAI almost taking down GitHub to, <laughs> I guess, that point? So the period in between kind of OpenAI uh, almost taking down GitHub <laughs> and then us really arriving at the kind of the user experience. You know, part of that was, frankly, a lot of really smart researchers at OpenAI experimenting and doing what like only world-class AI researchers can do. It was a lot of them experimenting, occasionally asking for updates to the data set, tossing back to us a model that we might play with and tinker around with. And these models have like literally thousands of parameters that you can pass to them. So when you're really thinking about kind of GPT-3 and Codex and then the transition from that to something like Copilot, it was not just like the model, creating the model is one thing, but then figuring out how to use the model in terms of what parameters do you want to kind of like adjust for? What do you want to optimize for in terms of like a great example of this is performance, right? When you're in a code editor, You don't necessarily want to type, 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 and then have to wait one second, two seconds, three seconds 
to get a suggestion back when your entire goal is to stay in the flow. And so we would run experiments to see like how many milliseconds are the right amount such that a developer doesn't feel like they're being interrupted by copilot and a suggestion. What's, what's the answer rather to that? that uh, it seems like right now it's around 200 milliseconds. So depending upon where you're in the world, your latency can go up or down a little bit from there. But it seems like the sweet spot is somewhere around 200 milliseconds. Get to know. Uh, and uh, we also experimented quite a bit. So it's not just about the, the model, but it's also about what you feed the model. How do you prompt the model to return back a useful response? And so this kind of began a journey of experimentation for what we call prompt crafting. So going back to the way this started, it sounds like basically it was kind of this fortunate accident where OpenAI just did something that you didn't expect. And then somebody within this like PhD group that you described is like, oh, wow, maybe we could do something really good with this. Is, is that kind of how it began? That's fairly accurate. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had a model that really like was amazingly good, like a step level change in actual like intelligence. Right. And then marrying that up against a like a really good use case that actually changes developers fundamental experience of the creation process, the creative process. Was there was there kind of a point at which it was clear to you or leadership in general, like we should double down on this thing, go big where this smaller team was working on this idea. And then they're like, oh, wow, this is going to work. Or is it always like, we will bet on this thing. This is such a big and great idea. We're going to invest resources for sure from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So the the original team that was working on Copilot at GitHub was, you know, the team that we call GitHub Next. And essentially their job is to work on second and third horizon projects, what some folks might call moonshots, right? Things that... We never really expect to work in the next one or two years, but might three, five years down the line actually turn into something meaningful. Is there a concrete definition of Horizon 2 and 3? Is it like number of years out, like like Amazon style? Not necessarily a concrete definition. Like For me, I usually ballpark it as first Horizon is the next year, second Horizon the next three years, third Horizon next five years. But we generally think of it more as like a measure of ambiguity and confidence level more than calendar dates. By the way, the corporate politics are also somewhat interesting. Uh, the guy you just heard is Ryan Salva, the VP of product for Copilot. Uh, but the VP of product for the VP of GitHub Next is Uga Demore who is a former professor turned startup founder uh, and then uh, who got acquired by GitHub and now serves as VP of GitHub Next. And he takes credit for GitHub Copilot as well. I don't really know the attribution between the two, but I assume uh, it took many people to <laughs> get something like this to work. The last thing I'll link you to is, a, is the Codex paper itself, which is worth a read if you're using GitHub Copilot. I think it's worth uh, scanning the 35 pages that they use to describe it. Um, I'll give you a little teaser. They established a benchmark called Human Eval, uh, which is a set of handwritten problems. Let me just see, 164 handwritten programming problems, uh, also openly released on GitHub, so you can go check it out as well. Um, 
and then they they evaluated all their prior models like GPT-3 and GPT-J, which is, which is the uh, open, open version of GPT-3, uh, solving 0% uh, and 11.4% of those problems, respectively, uh, creating codex solved 28.8% um, out of the box, and then optimizing it a little bit more, improved it to 70, 70.2% of their problems. So uh, a lot of interesting optimization stuff. Uh, I don't super understand it. Uh, there's a lot of um, charts regarding the thinking on competitive programming as well as uh, different sizes of models. So they also compared it to Tab 9, for example, which is a commercial competitor to Codex. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a lot of really cool research on the surface. Uh, not that surprising. A lot of people, a lot of developers I know are not impressed by OpenAI Codex or GitHub Copilot, but I think you should treat this as an indicator of things to come.